This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm J.G. Hertzler, and I played Kolos on Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise, and right now I'm on Warp 5. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I am your host, Patrick Devlin, and joining with me, as always, is my good friend, Brandon Shamatella. Brandon, how are you? I'm doing good. Is that what that translates to? It does, yes. That's my that's My, my universal translator way. wasn't working at first. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so you're not the only person on this podcast, though, today, are you? No, we've got a very special guest. We've got uh, Star Trek author James Swallow, who's written many great novels, and uh, I think he wrote the uh, the first great Titan novel as well. But uh, we've got him on because we're going to talk about the Tholians, and he's the guy who's written the most re- recent novel on the Tholians. James, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me on the show, guys. I was I was thinking there I should do the Universal Translator voice. Jonathan Archer, please give us the spaceship. Oh, I love that so much. I tweeted the other day to Mike Sussman. I'm like, Mike Sussman and Phil is strong. I'm like, that is that moment in Future Tense is in my top five of all of Enterprise moments. The first time we hear the Tholians talk and then that translated voice. I love it so, so much. <laughs> it's funny. Um, Mike was one of the people that I pitched to when I was pitching for Enterprise. And, and I do remember actually the two of us talking about how cool the Tholians were. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while because I love the Tholians so much. I think they are such a cool species. But, you know, it's really interesting because in the show, there is so very little of the Tholians. And they were primarily explored in the Litverse. But they they have such an interesting impact on fandom. You know, and I think to me, they're one of those corners that I would love to see explored more on screen, but I'm very grateful for what we do have in the book. So, so today on, on Warp 5, what we're going to be doing is we're going to talk primarily about the, the three episodes that we see them in on screen. Um, so we got the Tholian web from the original Star Trek, and then we have Future Tense and In a Mirror Darkly. And while I realize one of these incarnations of these alien species is a parallel dimension, uh, it is still really cool to see them nonetheless because it establishes some certain traits of these characters that we had not really seen before. So, and we'll, we'll probably address that as well. So, 
Excellent. Did you guys have any initial comments on the Tholians uh, before we get started? James, did you have any initial comments on them? You know, the thing um, I always liked about them, they were, they were my favorite alien species from the original series. Okay. Because, because they were so mysterious. You know, you remember that first time that we see Lowskin in uh, Thurling Web and you just see that weird shaped head and those scary demonic kind of eyes and that, that, that weird voice, you know. Um, the thing I think struck me the most about them is I think they are one of Star Trek's truly alien aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we get it in the next sometimes as, as, as Trek fans and people say, oh, aliens on Star Trek, they're just guys with like a weird thing stuck to their forehead or funny, funny ears, right? And, and that is true. A lot of the aliens we have in Star Trek are, you know, humanoids with some interesting makeup. But the Tholians really are kind of as far off the map as you can get. They're right out there with like species like a Horta or the Excalabians, right? It's aliens who truly don't look anything like us. I think that's one of the things that, that contributes to that enduring mystery and, and intrigue about what kind of characters they are. Mm-hmm. Patrick, what were your initial impressions on the Tholians? Well, that I think that's the biggest point is uh, that James just made was that they aren't humanoids. Mm-hmm. You know, they they are truly aliens, and in a time when that wasn't the easiest thing to do on television either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I, I forget who it was, but someone had said, you know, if you want non-humanoid aliens, you know, show me a non-humanoid actor, and I'll make them. <laughs> but, and uh, but you know. As time goes on, now we have CGI we can add in and stuff, so it became easier. But mm-hmm. back then, it was really hard to make someone not look human or make something not look human while it was acting out mm-hmm. on a on a TV show. And uh, so the the fact that this is what they're doing with this this race is making them not humanoid. And the fact that like even like their weapon in the first one was pretty cool when they were just doing a grid around. Mm-hmm. You know the the Tholian web, you know as it is. I thought it was really cool because it showed like the technology of the time, and that's kind of how just we saw computers at the time too working. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminded me of like when I was a kid playing the uh, the little turtle game on the old Macs, where you had to move it around and it would only draw straight <laughs> lines, and you would tell it turn right and then another straight line, turn left, another straight line. Mm-hmm. You you got to admit though that tactically speaking, the Tholian web is not that great a device because it involves your bat. Your, your the person you're attacking has to be completely immobile and unable to shoot back <laughs> before you well, can. Actually- it was the most. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yes, it would take for you'd need. I mean, I guess if there was a million of them, it would work. But yes, as we see it in the show, plus the holes look big enough that the Enterprise could leave. Yeah. <laughs> like even if it if it could just move, it seemed like. Like even the way it worked out, like oh, we blew ourselves clear of the web. Like really, you just you just shot yourself through the web, threaded the needle, literally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have I have some head cannon on that. So we're jumping right into the Tholian web here, which is fine. So some head cannon on that is they like didn't they push themselves into interphasic space and then that's how they got out of the web because they were like out of phase with it. That's how I always interpret it. I think you're right, but it just when you see it on screen, it looks like it's big enough to leave. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. You're right. They they kind of they they sort of like skip in a in a phase space and then back out again, right? It's like almost like a hyperspace jump if you want to <laughs> jump franchises for a second. But um, maybe it was the spore drive. Maybe they used the spore, <laughs> the spore drive. There you go, spore drive. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. So then I also have some head cannon for. The Tholian web, because, you know, crossing over to Enterprise here for a second, when we see it, the Tholian web represented in the mirror universe, it's very quick with how how quickly they establish it. Now, there's there's two ways that you could look at this. 
you could look at it first and foremost that it's the parallel dimension, so the technology developed at a quicker rate. Or you could determine it that they're like one of these species that doesn't like to expunge energy, and therefore be, they they just they didn't they knew they didn't need to create the web quicker because the enterprise was disabled, mm-hmm. so they were just saving energy to create it, and that's why they created it so slowly. Yeah, because so, I mean that that scene in in, in Mirror Darkly, you know, there's also a lot more Tholian ships. Yes, there is. Yes. So, so maybe you could you could say, yeah, you know, maybe two ships takes a while, but if you've got four or five, they can build it really quickly. Right. Maybe it's maybe it's a geometric thing. You know, instead of it being twice as powerful with two ships, it's four times, eight times. Maybe so. If you've got like half a dozen ships, you can build it really fast. Mm-hmm. Because with the Tholians being this crystalline species, which I don't know if that's established in the first episode in the Tholian web. I think that's added later on. It's interesting as well that in the in the Mirror Darkly. The, the web itself is, is a little bit more geometric in the way that it's shaped, where in the Tholian web, it looks a little bit more round, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it seems more like a globe mm-hmm. of sorts around them. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head, though. Like, it, it is, you know, two ships do it in an hour, but four ships do it in 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Or 15 seconds. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I I love how it looks in the in the mirror universe one, and honestly, it makes a lot more sense. And I just, I mean, the obvious reason is because it was 1960s special effects versus now, right? And it's it it's this story element to, um, like a ticking clock. Like they've got a got a they've got a certain amount of time that they've got to get out of the situation, right? So it's that ticking clock element that's been established in the Tholian web. Yeah, you've got much more of a sense of building drama in that one. Whereas in the Enterprise sequence, you know, it's like this has to happen quickly because that scene is very fast paced. But mm-hmm. yeah, in the Tholian web, it's more about, you know, um, it's that sort of creeping doom kind of situation where the Enterprise can't get away and this web is slowly being woven around them, which has a, it, it goes more for the kind of the, the sort of creeping horror of it rather than the sort of action way it's played in the enterprise episode um now i've written down some points that i've taken from memory alpha which is the the fan uh generated website which has a lot of background information on episodes and things like that and for the tholian web it says that the tholians were one of the earliest elements of the tholian web that was devised for the episode which was written by judy burns and chet richards referring obliquely to the species burns later said we had villains out there who were lurking in fact, the Tholians were created due to Burns fearing that the Tholian web was otherwise merely an average ghost story and was proving to be unworkable. Richards elaborated uh, that Burns wanted something to cause greater jeopardy so that everyone in the story gets real anxious as to whether they're going to be able to recover Kirk. That is when we brought in the Tholians. The name came from an expedition that an acquaintance of mine had actually been on, a geologist named Jack Green who had gone to the Aegean Islands, and after some digging had discovered a collapsed Tholos tomb, complete with its contents. So Tholos became Tholian. Uh, The renowned Tholian punctuality line was not in any version of the script, and it was ad-libbed by Leonard Nimoy during filming, which is interesting because we did reach out on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners group on Facebook, uh, about the Tholians and a couple people mentioned that line in particular, like, ah, the renowned Tholian punctuality. So for this to have been an ad libbed line, it's really fascinating that it stuck as one of the interesting traits that's been added to this species. 
well, yeah, because we don't have a lot else to kind of hang on to, do we? Really, we don't know a lot about them. Mm-hmm. We just get we just get this, you know, the the idea that they're fiercely territorial, that they're very xenophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have this kind of crystalline thing. So it's like if you if you've only got a few little story elements to build from, obviously, you know, it makes sense that that would be something that you would expand upon. Mm-hmm. Interesting as well to talk about that thing you say about the the Tholos tomb. Um, that Tholos that that means beehive. Oh. Because the because the because the Tholos tombs that you're talking about, these ancient Greek tombs in the Aegean Islands, um, are the shape of a beehive. So if you think you know we're we're getting into the whole kind of in, as well as being in a sort of reference to crystalline stuff, there's also insectoid re- references there, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a Tholian web, and you know, and they have a kind of even though they have a crystalline look, but you can also say they have an insectoid look because when we actually see them. Uh, you know, a full tholian. We see that it's like this. Six, is it six or eight legged? I, I can't remember how many it had, but it was. It's like a kind of mantis type thing mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, and that's in a mirror darkly when we see that. So um, that's an interesting thing as well because um, I have here. Um, I, I don't know if you can see or not, uh, James. I'm going to hold up. So I've got this original, the Worlds of the Federation novel. Not sorry, not novel, but like a book. Oh yeah, I have and, that. Yeah. The Tholians look very different in this. Now, this was a book that was created in the, I believe it was the late 80s. And it's just basically a book written and illustrated by Shane Johnson uh, that has various alien species that had been uh, mentioned. And so it basically just a kind of an encyclopedia. So there'd be a two pages per planet, per species and whatnot. But the Tholians, because we hadn't seen them again, were drawn as simply this almost floating diamond crystal like looking thing i'm going to hold it up for patrick so he can see oh yeah uh, zach yeah. moore brought this to our attention as well um so this is how they were interpreted based solely on the tholian web right because all we really saw in the tholian web was the the upper head just their eyes so i think it's interesting because there's really no way for them to move around it's funny you bring that up actually because that is actually uh, not the first appearance of that style of Tholian. There's, there's a, a Star Trek fan um, publication that came out before that was the Star, Starfleet Medical Reference Manual. Okay. Uh, and I think that, that was worked on by people like um, our good friend Larry Nemechek and, and people like um, uh, Jeff Mandel, who went on to work on Star Trek, the TV shows as well. Uh, and it was, you know, one of those kind of semi-professional fan productions. And there's, and because it's a medical manual, it has all of these kind of different files on Star Trek alien species. And there's, um, there's one on there in the Tholians about the idea of all these um, sort of, uh, how can I put it, these kind of hypotheses that Starfleet have about how Tholians might exist if they are a crystalline species. You know, how do they, what's their internal workings? You know, what's the inside the exoskeleton of that? And that picture that you, you showed there from, worlds of the federation that's kind of an extrapolation of of that idea so it's a uh, interesting to draw that line right you know that that kind of creation of continuity people thinking how can we come up with a backstory for these species when all we have is that one episode mm-hmm. because when we see them on the tholian web like we don't really know what the heck they are because all we have is this weird discolored image of them you know and so people had to extrapolate simply from this one shot of one alien species half of its face yeah, you know. So yeah, well, go ahead, Patrick. I, I find it interesting that the way they shape the face to me looks like a roach. I, I don't know why. It looks like kind of like how you would. 
animate like a, a cockroach or something like that. But then, you know, mm-hmm. you, they're crystalline. So the picture in that book makes sense, except like you're right. It's like they would have to be floating so they'd be anti-gravity beings, right? And um, mm-hmm. I also find it interesting that it kind of split the body into two parts that were that look appear to be separated. Yeah, yeah. Like the head is floating over the body, and then it looks like like you said, it looks like a crystal that you would find like a video game today. That, you know, you have to find this crystal and move on to the next stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess if you if we think about it, we, we could we could go crazy with this idea, could we? I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe there are like maybe you can imagine like. Um, uh, if the, you know, if the Tholian species, if they're if they're kind of internal workings, the you know their brain, for want of a better term, is like kind of piezoelectric energy moving through crystals. That's like kind of the consciousness. That's the energy of their brain. Maybe they grow bodies for different jobs, right? So maybe like the captain of one ship might be like just a floating crystal, and maybe he physically slots into like a console. And that's how he controls the ship. But then we see the pilot in the Enterprise episode, and it's got a body, and it's got this praying mantis kind of style body. And maybe that could be, maybe that's not even a body. Maybe that's the equivalent of like an like a an exoskeleton. You know, a kind of if you think of like say Doctor Octopus from the Spider Man movies, right? You know, an extra set of arms and legs. Maybe, maybe that's like the Tholian equivalent of that. Is that they could, mm-hmm. you know, they have modular forms that you could slot into. It's fascinating to kind of extrapolate this stuff. Yeah, that would be cool. Like they could be like mech warriors. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, they just interchangeable parts, mm-hmm. which would be which would be very interesting, and uh, it would fit with that first picture very well. Mm-hmm. Because if it's a crystal, I mean, you know, crystals can be grown in sort of baths of chemicals. So if, uh, if it was like a creature that was made of crystal, if it like, like lost a piece of itself, could it like a lizard kind of grow back? Or could it like, you know, kind of meld a piece on from like a, another kind of crystal? It's, it's an interesting idea. You because know, I was thinking maybe it was like a larval form. You know, if it's a bug, then it starts off looking like this and ends up looking like that. Yeah. But I actually like the whole they just pick themselves up and put them in different bodies to do different things would be cooler. Mm -hmm. Because the concept of a crystalline species is like mind-boggling to me. And maybe that's part of the reason why we love the Tholians so much is it's such an alien species that we can't even grasp. Because how could it have a heart? You know, like how could it have blood? Like it, it obviously doesn't because these things move and crystals are solid. Right? So, like, how does it have a brain? You know, so it obviously doesn't have organic components. I think the, the idea that they played with in the, the, the medical reference, man, we, I'm just looking around my office now to see if I've got it handy. I can, I can grab it and see what the details are. I think the idea they had was that inside, it's like a crystal exoskeleton shell, so it's, but it's not solid. It's not completely solid inside. So there would be like a, a kind of liquid component. So if you cracked one open, you know, it would be full of goo. And that, okay. and maybe that goop is, you know, there's there's that electrochemical reaction going on in there, which is somehow simulating the the action of like an internal organs and, and like a brain structure. Because I mean, you know, with us as, you know, carbon based life forms, you know, our brains operate by electrochemical processes. Mm-hmm. So you could say, well, maybe you know, maybe the tholians are the same thing, but their electrical chemi- chemical process is going through a crystalline structure rather than, you know, a, a kind of organic structure of neurons like the, like human brains. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It is interesting to think about because you do have, you know, um, different crystals resonate at different frequencies, which could play a role yeah. in this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just so much, that, like you said, James, there's so much to play with mm-hmm. on what's really happening here, which is, which you know, for a show like this, 
that is part of the reason why people love it because there's so much to talk about that's not mm-hmm. fact that there's a lot where you can just discuss and keep talking and keep talking and keep talking and never really be truly right or wrong. Now, one of the interesting things that I found on Memory Alpha as well was that um, so there was a there was a book called the Star Trek Star Charts. I believe this is the one that was written by Larry Namachek as well. And it says that their planet was never seen on camera, but according to this book, Tholia is a class Y planet. The homeworld of the Tholians is a class Y planet. Now, the class Y planet we've seen on screen in Voyager, the demon planet is a class Y planet. And I think it was always like assumed that they had a really hot environment based on the image that we saw on the view screen. They lived in a very hot uh, environment. I don't think it was mentioned in the Tholian web. I just watched it. They didn't say anything about the temperature. But in future tense, when Reed is scanning the ship, he's like, it's very hot over there. And he says it's more than 200 degrees. Uh, but like other things say that, like other books say that it could be up to 500 degrees. And I'm not sure what, 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 um, um, scale there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a line um, oh, well, in in the uh, in the mirror universe episode. He says 480 degrees Kelvin, right. and that's 200. That's 206 degrees Celsius. Okay, per, I don't know how to convert that. So then that that's <laughs> that works. That's good. So yeah, because Reed had said more than 200 degrees. Or if, if you Kel- you know, for our, for our Canadian friends, it's 440 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> well, can, uh, Americans use uh, Fahrenheit. No, the other way. Is it the yeah. Other way? yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, can- Canadian Jews Celsius. It's oh, me okay. that needs the Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, four hundred and four degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, that's yeah. So about warm. double boiling. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that makes sense because if they're crystal entities, right, their reproductive functions would be some kind of, you know, chemical reaction, and that would produce heat, or require mm-hmm. heat, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then one of the character trait that we get from In a Mirror Darkly is that Flock says the more representative is the term it because it has both male and female characteristics. So that's another interesting... So even there, so now we've got like sexual organs and stuff on this on this crystalline entity, which you wouldn't think it would have. So that's an interesting thing that they've thrown into In a Mirror Darkly as well because crystals don't reproduce sexually they just grow yeah so maybe maybe that's kind of what he was getting at is that you know that it has the ability to reproduce um you know asexually okay yeah yeah quite possibly excellent were you able to find that book james i'm just looking now um so it talks about the um it comparing oh yeah it has an image where it has like what what, what a tholian cell looks like comparing like humanoid to the salt monster and a horter and a tholian it says and the tholian the crystalloid structure of tholians the cell's biological function resembles those of human cells but each cell nucleus contains an electrical charge okay so that kind of goes back into the idea like we said about maybe that they're that they function in that sort of electrochemical fashion that they have that um you know, semi, you know, semi-organic, semi-crystalline sort of structure. It's this weird thing that fits halfway between. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I've just found the pages for it. Yeah, so it shows. Um, it shows like uh, the the head of Lofskin that we saw in the movie, and like almost like a kind of cutaway. So it says it has like the, you've got the eye spots, you've got this heat reflective outer skin, and inside there's an internal electromagnetic magnetic field that holds the the shell together. And the and the entry says. Uh, Tholians are anaerobic with an average body temperature of 275 degrees centigrade. 
the cool oxygen-based environment of humanoids is unfit for folian life, low temperatures threatening to crack a tholian's crystalline husk, so it is unlikely that humans will be able to come in direct contact with them for medical and investigative purposes. Inhabitants of a small, dense, hot planet, the tholians are members of a hive culture and possess a hive mind. Each individual member, while retaining a separate identity, is a highly specialized creature, unable to effectively adapt to radically changing conditions experienced outside of the home colony. At present, only specifics on the anatomy of the warrior class are available, although it is known that other types or castes of Tholians exist. The Tholian soldier appears to have no appendages and has perhaps adapted itself to work in conjunction with the controls of their defensive space cruisers. Mm-hmm. So that is from... Now, when was that put together? This, so this, this manual was written... This is, you've got to remember, this is pre-TNG, right? So this is... Yep. This is this is Jeff Mandel. Doug Dretzler was involved in this as well, and um, Anthony uh, Fredrickson, and uh, the editor was a woman called Eileen Palestine. This book came out in 1977, so we're looking at kind of we're around the motion picture era when when this was being put together. And what's the name of the book again, James? It's the Starfleet Medical Reference Manual. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that's said in there actually was carried on into the show, right? So this this extreme temperature, but also the ability of dropping the temperature to crack. The external, uh, the external skin of the uh, the Tholians. Yeah, so we see that in in, uh, in a mirror darkly. Yeah, that's right. When Flox is, is um, tormenting and torturing the uh, the, the Tholian, he drops the temperature by like hundred degrees mm-hmm. and almost kills it. And then does later on in that episode where you know he drops it to such a degree that the whole thing just shatters like glass, which is quite a horrible moment. Mm-hmm. Um, now. We we get a few mentions. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna name the episodes that they are mentioned in. Uh, other than this, I won't go too in depth into what we hear about them um, because I think they're just name drops just for fan service. But in the Icarus Factor, we find out that uh, Riker's dad, Kyle Riker, negotiated uh, a truce of some kind between uh, I guess the Federation and the Tholians. Uh, we hear them mentioned in Peak Performance, Reunion, and Star Trek Nemesis. So those are the Next Generation mentions. And then in D Space Nine, they're mentioned in Life Support, The Way of the Warrior, Indiscretion, Homefront, For the Cause, In the Cards, and A Call to Arms. And these are just name dropped. Now, one of the things that we do get, though, that boggles my mind based on the canon establishment of this high temperature is the concept of Tholian silk. <laughs> How can this possibly exist? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I guess maybe there might be stylish dressing Tholians back on their home planet. Want to look good? <laughs> but it wouldn't. This silk would just burn. I mean, like this must be actually if it doesn't burn because this planet's so hot, Patrick. This has got to be the ultimate PPE. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just thinking that. Like, I don't understand why I'm not wearing this to work every day. Because if it can withstand that, then it should easily be good for an arc suit. Yes, especially if it's that soft yeah. that they're making dresses out of it. And right, it's this would be phenomenal. And of course, you, you got to remember as well. We're going back to the insect thing again, right? Because silk comes from silkworms, spiders, yeah. right? You know, it's it's something that's spun by insectile creatures. So, are we literally saying the tholians themselves are actually spinning this stuff like a like oh, a web? I love that. I love that. That's awesome. And of course, it would be super super thermally resistant, right? So you'd have something that would not only be, you could make a stylish shirt out of it, but you could also turn a flamethrower on it and it would be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I'm an electrician. So when I go to throw a switch for the first time, you know, a 4,000 amp switch, I got to wear this heavy, thick padded uniform to make sure that if something went wrong, I don't die. But if I can get some Tholian silk. Yeah. You could look good be like a, doing it at the same time. Right. right? 
t-shirt and, and jeans, and we're good. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, I'm just thinking for when I go to Mexico, <laughs> I can have a stylish Tholian silk Mexican Hawaiian or a Hawaiian shirt. I love it. Yeah, because you got to know that that stuff would that that stuff would be light on you. It would look good. It would breathe well. Yeah, you know, and you wouldn't have to worry about like getting all sweaty and uncomfortable. No, and, uh, no sunburn. <laughs> yeah, the, there you go. The UV rays aren't getting through that. Clearly, clearly, that's why it's so popular, right? It's because it is, you know, obviously one of the most. It's it's stylish and functional. And this is why they are the most famous of the species, because <laughs> people are trying to get their silk everywhere. Well, I I now actually want a Hawaiian shirt made out of just silk, and the pattern is so is Tholians. Oh, that would be so cool! <laughs> Can you, that would be a great. Wouldn't that be a great design? You'd have like you know just little ships drawing a web all over the back of you, and I, like a nice kind of dark blue with a Tholian web design over it. CBS, if you're listening, CBS licensing, get right and, on that. You know, that's and a on great the idea. pocket, leave a little crystal guy. Yeah, yes. just one little crystal yeah, instead guy. of the alligator. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so one more topic that I wanted to talk about is uh, is the government. So the, the government is known as the Tholian Assembly. Uh, and then in Future Tense, uh, T'Pol says that the Vulcan High Command has only had limited contact with them. But I like these words that were chosen. And they, they're really fascinating, right? So we've got the, the Tholian Assembly, and they annex things. Now... Annex, as far as I know, just means they just walk in and claim it. Is that what annex means? Yeah, in a military sense, annexing something is just, yeah, you know, this island belongs to me. I plant my flag on yeah, it. Very British of them. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you know, this is ours. It's not yours. We live here. Not anymore. There's a, there's an interesting um, story, again, something from the, from the lit verse in... Um, in the comics, when when Marvel briefly had the license for for Star Trek, they did uh, a series of early years comics, which were about Pike on the Enterprise in the very early days. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of stories in there about the Tholians, which um, introduces the thing that never turned up anywhere else, which is that they had like a kind of slave species, uh, kind of insectoid slave species, who were like kind of their stormtroopers. So. You know, when the Tholians needed to invade a planet, they wouldn't go down themselves. They'd send these guys in to go and do it for them. But one of the ideas in that story was it touched on the idea of why the Tholians annex space and why they're, you know, so going back to the Tholian web when the Enterprise turns up and the Tholians say, well, this belongs to us. And Spock says, no, you know, this is free space. It doesn't belong to anybody. And the Tholians say, well, we decided it's ours now. And there was the whole idea, the writer, uh, Dan Abnett, came up with this idea that the Tholians had this idea of space as a kind of moving thing, is that because of the nature of sort of the way that borders in space are quite, quite difficult to kind of plot out, is the borders of their unit, their, um, not their universe, their, um, their, their empire, as it were, were constantly in motion. So there would be an area that, you know, you would think, oh, the line is here, and the Tholians would go, no, it, it moved, because it's a Tuesday, and now your planet is in the Tholian Empire, but... And so that's why they, you know, they had this, it was difficult to predict what part of space the Tholians would think belonged to them. I'd like to see that, like, play out even more. Like, if we would have gotten more from the species of just that happening, like, oh, like you said, like, Tuesday, that's ours. Oh, it's Wednesday, we can't make them vote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We should, well, let's hopefully get something like that in Discovery. I think it'd be neat to to see the Tholians again. I mean, that's... You know, we, we, we don't have a lot of contact with them, and they're not really well-known, but uh, I, I would like to see more of them. I think it would be a fun thing to check out. Um, I, so, James, I did want to ask you now, 
uh, about fear itself. Uh, mm-hmm. So without getting into any spoilers of the novel or whatnot for people who, who haven't read it, um, and this isn't really the Discovery podcast, but what was your, why did you choose the Tholians in, for your, for the novel Fear Itself? So a couple of reasons. Firstly, to go back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast, which is that I think they're cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and also for all these other reasons we've been talking about is that they're an interesting species. They haven't had enough time in the spotlight. They have that mystery. And, and because Fear Itself is, it's a book about uh, the character of Saru, who is a guy who is constantly dealing with his own kind of fear of pretty much everything. And the Tholians factor nicely into that because they are scary in that kind of unknown ways that, you know, that they are this mysterious force. And so if you don't know what's going on with them, it can be, can be sort of just frightening to be confronted by them. But there was also a a practical reason for it, which was um, the storyline is set before um, discovery. So it's it's several years before that, before the, the, the battle of the binary stars and all those stuff we see at the beginning of season one. And I needed a threat force for the story. I needed a bad guy, alien species that I could use. And most of the other ones were off the table. You know, I couldn't use the Klingons because that would, you know, that was too much like what was being done in the show. Couldn't use the Romulans because the Romulans are still a, you know, a mysterious, even more mysterious than the Tholians at this point in Star Trek history. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I could create something new, but what would be more cool is to kind of go back and touch on something from existing Trek lore and the Tholians perfectly fit the bill as this mysterious, dangerous species who are territorial, who will basically, you know, just pick a fight with anybody they don't like the look of, which is pretty much everybody else in the entire universe. So they, they kind of ticked all of the boxes for me. And, uh, and it was just fun for me to, to get in there and write a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah, it's a very good book. I like it a lot. Saru is my favorite Thank character you. on Discovery. And... Um, I got to say the best decision they made in the show was getting rid of his threat ganglia because I love how he's changed since then. And I did have a big problem with his threat ganglia uh, in the first season and a half of the show, uh, you know, but I, I really like the direction that he's been going and he's, he's even more my favorite character on the show now since he's changed. So I love it. Yeah. It's cool to see him grow and evolve. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And then we got the Tholians quite a bit. Uh, there's a series of books that's a fan favorite uh, that is called the Vanguard series, and the Tholians play a big role in those. So if you want to check more uh, on the expanded universe, the Litverse, uh, definitely check out the uh, the Vanguard series because they're very good books. Uh, they've kind of been described as like D-Space Nine in the TOS era, and you know it's, it's a very interesting uh, interwoven story that takes place throughout the three seasons of the original Star Trek, just from different characters' points of view. And, you know, Kirk Kirk and Spock pop in every once in a while in these books, uh, but it does have its own cast of crew, uh, that you know, some, some smugglers and some Starfleet crew, and Admiral Nagura is in there, so you get some interesting Star Trek references to uh, some other characters that we've we've heard of that we seem to like. So uh, I think that's, they're a very good series of books as well. So, uh, And then if you like the interphasic space... There was a great duology of SCE novels uh, by David Mack, I believe it was, that touch on interphasic space and touch on what happened with that area of space. And it's a it's a very interesting couple of books. And then, you know, the the events that were set up in the Tholian Web and Intermere Darkly lead into events that we do see in Discovery, which is really awesome. And I kind of squeed when uh, the first time they talked about uh, the Defiant on Discovery. I thought that was absolutely amazing and a wonderful callback. So... Uh, we got some great stuff that, that, that seeds its way through Star Trek continuity. Sure. And, you know, if you want to see some um, alternate 
takes on, on like Tholians. You can, if you look at the Star Trek online game, there's a, there's a whole kind of alternate version of the Tholians there and, and a whole thing with, with, with them as sort of the way they play out in that game. Or if you like uh, board games, there's the, the Starfleet Battles game, which is just a huge, great big military combat war game. That has a whole thing with uh, the Tholians but again, played out in a completely different way, sort of like, you know, a really interesting sort of approach where, again, someone's taken what we've seen on the show and played it out in a totally different fashion. Okay, good. Yeah, I've never played Star Trek Online, so I'm like, it's too much of a time vampire is what I'm worried about because i got too much stuff to do. It really is. <laughs> do you play it? It definitely James? can be. Yeah, on and off. Uh, I haven't played for a while, but yeah, I, I find that when I, when I do sit down uh, and play it, it's like, oh, I've lost like four or five days to this. Yeah, okay. exactly. So then maybe you could settle an argument because I read somewhere that they considered um, Star Trek Online to be canon because it was the only stuff that was after. Like, I, that was the impression. Now, that it's probably going to get overwritten by the new Picard show uh, that's coming out. But is Star Trek Online considered canon? You know, I don't really know. Um, it, it's funny you should mention this. Is, this kind of came up in conversation when I was working on a Star Trek Titan novel. Okay. Um, and... Uh, do you remember the episode Schisms? Kind of a sidebar here. The the alien race that turns up in, in Schisms were, were never given a name, and they turn up in, in my Titan novel. And yep. uh, Pocketbooks asked me to use the name that they were given in Star Trek Online oh. because that was quote-unquote official, even though it hadn't appeared like on screen. So I said, oh, are we, is, are we considering Online to be canon now? And it was like kind of, oh, we'll get back to you. So I think, I think it's like, you know, it's like a lot of this kind of stuff. I think it's, it's very similar to the kind of situation with the Star Wars franchise right now is it's, it's, you know, it's, if no one talks about it, it, it exists in this kind of state of like Schrodinger's canon. It is, can, it is canon. It is not canon. You know, it is simultaneously one and the other. So I think if they see something in that game that they like and they want to use it in the show, it will become canon. But it isn't really sort of officially one way or the other. And to be honest, I, I try not to get caught up too much in these sort of arguments. I'm more interested in like, is it a good story? Is it a good game? That's to me the most important thing. I, I agree with you. Like I tend to, I'm not a can of police. I, um, there are certain things that I get stickler points on, but as for the broad stuff, um, you know, I, I believe that, you know, we have a thing on the network that we call a headcanon. And for me, headcanon is to describe things like that are written 50 years apart that contradict each other. Like, like, um, or like years and years apart that contradict each other. Like one of the prime examples is why does Scotty say, Oh, I bet you Captain Kirk got me in, in um, relics. And then of course we see that he died. He, he saw him die in generations. So he obviously wouldn't say that. So like head cannon is used to describe minor inconsistencies that are completely irrelevant to the rest of the storytelling universe. And, you know, I, I really truly believe that a, being a reader of the novels the people that read the novels are people that are less sticklers for that type of canon because we focus more on the storytelling because it's so often that something is written in a novel and then it gets overwritten later. But that doesn't devalue the book because the book is still a great story, you know, yeah. and the book like the, the novels, the original series novels were the were the really only way to get those types of stories for a really long period of time, you know, so. I believe that people who read the novels are people who are able to accept the quote-unquote inconsistencies more easily than the other fans. You know, I, I can understand the impulse. I mean, you know, I'm a Star Trek, died in the wool Star Trek fan from way back in the, you know, the early 80s. So I understand there is that kind of compulsion where you think it would be really 
really cool to see everything fit together in this like perfect jigsaw puzzle that builds this fantastic kind of universe. But even the shows themselves, even a particular show, even original series Star Trek is not consistent with itself. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of go like, you know, well, that, that episode kind of said this thing, you know, calls, you know, people from Spock's home planet Volcanians. It's like, is, is that the right word for it? Or is that just a different term for it? You know, or you want to spend 20 minutes arguing on, on, on a forum somewhere about the pronunciation of that particular thing. Is it lithium crystals or dilithium crystals? And it's, you know, all these things kind of, uh, you know, contradict each other. But it's like, it's, if it's not germane to the story, I think if it's not ruining a narrative, I, I tend to kind of go, oh, just let that slide. You know, if it's a good story, it's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat in the same boat. Um, I think, like, one of the things, and I've said this to other people before, is, yeah, Star Trek contradicts itself at times. And if you're going to get too hung up on it, then you probably don't read history books either. Yeah. Because you read two history books by two different authors, and they'll give you slight variations of the same story. Mm-hmm. And they may contradict each other, and that's... Just because perspective and point of view change. Mm-hmm. So why we would expect a TV show to be perfect, I, I don't know. It seems a little ridiculous to me because you're looking at the TV show, we're analyzing it on a podcast as if it is, in fact, something that really happened. So, of course, different tellings of that story would be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even if it was real history... Like you just said, you know, even that real history is, is presented to us in, in different fashions by different people with different agendas. And Star Trek, I mean, how many people have written Star Trek? Hundreds and hundreds of different writers, you know, all have been kind of contributing to that big jigsaw that I mentioned earlier. And I'm, I'm pleased to say I'm, I, was, I was lucky enough to be one of those people. I have my own point of view about the way the Star Trek universe works. And I'm sure there are other writers who would see it in a different way from me. Does that make me right and them wrong or, or, or vice versa? No, it's like because we're all contributing to that great big thing that we can all enjoy. And I think you get hung up on the minutiae of it and you, you miss the bigger picture of the, of the fun of what Star Trek really is. Like how many, how many original series novels? We're going on a big tangent here, so too bad, listeners. How many original <laughs> series novels are there, right? I mean, there, I've got sitting to the left of me you know, Star, uh, Pocket Books stopped putting numbers on the spines of the Star Trek novels at number 97. There was also the um, the previous, which I, why, the, oh, I can't remember the publishing company, Bantam. Bantam, There yeah. was the Bantam books before those. You know, like, it's not possible for all of those stories to have taken place, right? So, like, because <laughs> there's just not enough time for how many stories there are and how long these stories take place. So for me, it's just it's just more stories with the characters that we love. However, one thing that you did say, James, I do have an answer for. Dilithium versus lithium? Well, in my head canon, there's also trilithium. And of this course. is just like the octane in your gasoline. You got, oh, you know, in yeah. Canada, we've got 87 octane, we got 89 octane, and 91 octane. So it's just your different qualities of gasoline. You got lithium. There you, oh, there you go. That makes perfect sense. That's a, there you go. That, that is now in my head canon. Right. Cool. <laughs> I like that. So. Yeah, I like that too, actually. You get better mileage out of dilithium <laughs> yeah. than you do out of lithium. Um, but, and, and that makes perfect sense because we know that trilithium is, is, is super unstable and dangerous, and that's like top fuel, right? So you have to be really yeah. careful with that. Yeah. It'd be almost like airplane yeah. fuel, <laughs> you know, which is like 104 or something like that. But um, no, but to, to try and wrap this all the way back to your original question about Star Trek Online. Um, the way I see it is it's canon until they tell us it's not yeah. and, uh, and whatever. And if they tell me it's not, I'm not going to flip out that, oh, but I've been believing this because of Star Trek online for 10 years now. 
Well, they could tell me flat out on screen that Andorians have two genders, and I won't buy it. They have four. In my head canon, they have four genders, and I love that. I think that is a wonderful concept <laughs> that was done in the books, and that is that has overwritten anything that will be on screen, you know? like. So. And really, your fandom is your fandom, yes, right? Yes, yes. That's the one thing that I find that fans of anything, it's not just a Star Trek issue, but fans become so bogged down in their own fandom mm-hmm. that they can't even agree to disagree on a point yeah because you know you if you have something that you really care about like this you know you have a version of it that kind of lives in your head and and that's the version that you fell in love with Mm -hmm. and and that's never going to be a hundred percent the same as the one that somebody else has or or that the people creating it have and the and the thing is is if you understand that that's all well and good right it's when you say to people Oh, I don't like this because it's not like the version of Star Trek I have in my head and you should make it the same as that one. It's like, well, you can't do that mm-hmm. because you can't make a version of Star Trek for everybody, an individual version of Star Trek for every individual version of, of a Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like the Star Wars it's prequels. Funny you said that. The, the Star Wars prequels that I wrote in my head were way better than what we got on film. <laughs> I think that's true of everybody, though. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but it, it's true because one of the things that drives me crazy is and there was a lot of things in Discovery Season 1 that I didn't particularly like, right? And for various reasons, whatever. But I can't stand the person who yells, the you know, they feel if they yell the loudest, if you don't change it, I'm going to stop watching. Well, I guess this Star Trek isn't really for you, but that doesn't change the fact that it's Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, uh, to those people, I you say, know. don't let the airlock hit you in the ass on the way out then, you know, because... <laughs> It's it's you know people who don't like the 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 um the two thousand and nine the alternate um uh, Kelvin timeline novel uh, movies I say well you know that's fine you know maybe maybe that Star Trek's not for you I'd say uh, you know there's plenty of more there's plenty of other Star Trek out there go ahead and check something else out you know but don't bag on people who do like it exactly right right and plus look it, it, more Star Trek is always a good thing I, yeah. I say it all the time one of the things that the Kelvin timeline and Discovery has done has really brought my wife into loving Star Trek. The older Star Treks, she's seen them all because of me, but they weren't, you know, they didn't speak to her the way that these do, you know, so it's doing its job. It's bringing in more people so that we'll get more Star Trek, and that's always a good thing. I mean, I've been a Trek fan, like I said, from from the classic era. I started watching uh, TOS in the 1980s when it was being rerun on British TV. This is just about the time that kind of Wrath of Khan was coming down the pipe. So that's the era, that's like my first fandom of Star Trek, right, is, is classic Trek and that maroon tunic kind of movie era, right? That's, to me, that's pure, that's Star Trek at its purest form. But having said that, I've watched every Star Trek that's ever come down the pipe. So, you know, the animated series, I've watched, like, every, every series, I've watched Discovery, I've watched the movies, you know, and I love Star Trek. I love it all. Some of it I love more than others. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of, of, of Threshold, that, that, that Voyager episode. <laughs> You know, Spock's brain gets a lot of um, a lot of stick, but you know, but it's like one of those kind of things that um, I love it, but I can love it kind of warts and all as well. You know, there I know that there are parts of it that I won't enjoy as much as other bits, but I still love it because to me, Star Trek is one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorite fandoms, and and that's always going to be true. Yeah, I completely agree, and uh, I feel the same way. And I think to wrap this back to what we were actually talking about for this podcast. The Tholians fit in perfect with that theory because there's so little about them that everyone has a version of them. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you, yeah. you can enjoy all of those versions independently of each other. The Star Trek Online version is one version. The novels, I, I don't, I haven't read a lot of novels, but I'm sure there's slight differences in even the novels. So, mm-hmm. but 
you don't have to just outright go, you know what, I don't like this novel at all because they changed the Tholians on me. Like, it's just another story. Yeah. The thing about the Tholians is because they're so mysterious, it, there, there are there is this area of doubt and uncertainty about them, you know? And so you as a fan, you can kind of project in a way what, what you want to see about them into that alien species because it hasn't been nailed down. You know, mm-hmm. nobody said, here is a definitive backstory about the Tholians. You know, there is no technical manual that gives you like complete and utter perfect information about the Tholians from top to bottom, right? There's that mystery about them. And I think that again, coming back to our main thrust of this, that's what makes them so compelling is that they are this kind of, you know, this mystery box of an alien species that we know so little about and we're compelled to go, well, I want to know a little bit more, but I don't want to know too much because mm-hmm. then we lose that, that cool mystery. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. James, did you have any final thoughts on the Tholians themselves or did that just kind of sum it up for you? Man, I would love to see them turn up on Discovery. Wouldn't that be cool? I, I, I mean, with the, with the way that Discovery's kind of changed up the, the style and the visual aesthetic of, of what, Star Trek looks like. I mean, I'm just thinking recently of like, you know, when we saw the Talosians turn up again, mm-hmm. spoiler alert there, um, on, um, on Discovery. I would love to see what Discovery would do with the Tholians, with what a Tholian ship would look like, what Tholian characters would look like. To see that on screen being done in, in 2019 would be very cool. Mm-hmm. Patrick, any final thoughts? Um, no, I think I, I wrapped, you know, most of it up during the episode. Uh, I, I think I just, I would... Uh, you know, mirror uh, James's attitude on. I would love to see them in Discovery because think about how fast we can make a web now. Mm. Yeah, you know, it'd be really cool, and you can make the you can make it look really cool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe we can just and and I also though if they do show up, I don't want long backstory because I think I do want to keep the mystery. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe we would learn if we see. I guess we kind of can intimate it now that. They're kind of pack hunters, but and they can do something along that line so that the, the web goes up quick or something. But you know, don't don't give me too much because I want to be able to believe all the different versions mm-hmm. and you know make this part. This is part of Star Trek that I can make mine and mine alone because in my head I can come up with whatever I want for the Tholians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool, yeah. James, thank you so very much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a real treat having you on and talking about the Tholians. Why don't you let listeners know what you're working on right now, where they can find you online, any projects you got down the pipe, anything in particular that you want them, that you've done that you want them to uh, take a look for other than Fear Itself, which we've talked about quite a few times here. Sure, sure thing. Well, uh, yeah, as I said, Fear Itself is my, my most recent Star Trek book, but I have, uh, I also do uh, writing outside of um, science fiction. I also write like action thrillers and spy novels. Uh, I have uh, a new edition coming out in, in the US and North America for Exile, which is my second spy novel. And in the UK and Europe, uh, the fourth book in that series, Shadow, is going to be coming out at the end of May. I'm also going to be launching, um, this, is, this is the first place I'm talking about this, I'm going to be launching my own official website uh, very, very soon, probably in the next two or three weeks. And I'm going to be giving away some free short fiction. There's going to have everything on there about my entire career, including all of the information about all of my Star Trek projects. So it's going to be like a one-stop shop if you want to find out about uh, Jim Swartz. It's all going to be there. Um, so keep an eye on my Twitter feed. If you want to uh, talk to me or tweet to me or talk to me about what your theories about the Tholians are, you can get me at JM Swallow. And I'm pretty much there kind of every day of the week. Do you know when that website uh, launches? Because we're recording this on the 7th of April, but this episode's going to drop on the 25th of April. Okay, so I'm hoping it will be late April, early May. 
late April or May. Okay, so right around the time of this episode dropping. So start checking out his feed and uh, and and see what's going on for this website for James Swallow. So excellent. Thank you so very much. It's been great. You can come back anytime if there's any other enterprise topics you want to talk about. Send us a note. We'd love to have you back. Oh, thanks, man. Brandon, Patrick, it's so good to be on here. And it's a terrific way to spend sort of a Sunday afternoon uh, just talking about Star Trek. I really enjoyed it. Right on. It was great. Thank you for coming. Well, talking about the Tholian Assembly is not all we've been discussing here on Trek FM this week, so please take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. He's like, oh, we can't be vague, and he's like, I'm not doing it. Is that vague enough for you? Yeah. That was so great. I know. Yes, Tyler's having these little quip answers, quick-witted, you know, when he's talking with uh, George O, and she's like, I'm going to trust you, but if you betray my trust, I'm going to hunt you down. Literary Treks. And we have the USS Titan, and they're, they're going so far as to make modifications to people's quarters and the different living arrangements to account for various alien physiologies and all that sort of thing. Because not only do we have just a diversity of alien species, we have a diversity of people who aren't even humanoid, which I think is a really cool thing. And something, you know, you can do that in a book at the time more easily than you could on television, for sure. So I think they make really good use of the medium to present us with a crew like this. Warp 5. Because he had a near-death experience, he's now all of a sudden upset that T'Pol won't admit her feelings for him. Right. Right. And now, look, I can understand how the near-death experience triggers that, but this, the payoff of him asking to leave should have happened three episodes from now. Yes, he should be grown up enough. Earl Grey. I mean, of course, the difference with Geordi and Data is that they're regular characters and they're in almost every episode. <laughs> so there's more of that potential for interaction and Guinan isn't in it as many. And I know it wouldn't have been as possible at the time, but I can dream about the next generation starting with Guinan being like a regular there every week. I mean, hey, you know, Quark's a bartender and he's a regular on DS9. Why not Guinan? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go back in time and change that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please, leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thought on today's show. I did that when I that did the first work. episode, and I was on my commentary for Future Towns. I did that, and I just wrecked my throat. <laughs> oh, that hurt. <laughs> we love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. 
You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Patrick, where can people find you when you're not breaking into the place and claiming it as your own? Uh, well, when I'm not doing that, because I annex my neighbors all the time, uh, they can find me using their Wi-Fi to get on the Babel Conference <laughs> and talk to the listeners. You can also find me using um, sitting on Twitter at MagicDrop5. It's no, no spaces, and the five is a digit. Or they can find me jumping a little ahead in the timeline and being on the edge with Amy Nelson, my good friend. So, Brandon, where can people find you when you're not setting your house to 480 degrees so you can grow larger? <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. You can find me here on the network with a lot of treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. I'm over on the Fandom Podcast Network as well as in our own independent feed with Good Evening and Alfred Hitchcock Podcast. And Zach Moore from Standard Orbit. He and I have a show called Franchise Fatigue, which is over on the United Federation of Podcast Network. And we talk about movies and franchises and sequels. And right now we should be knee deep in the uh, Godfather series with our associate producer, Chris Trebuzio. So be sure to check that out. That's a lot of fun. And every once in a while, I poke my head up on the Cinematic Sound radio network with my show Breaking the Waves, which is all about electronic film scores. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, Tholian Silk, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate your support, any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. At this time, we'd like to thank the wonderful associate producers who support Warp 5 as well as Trek FM in general. Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, Chris Tribuzio, and Jim McMahon. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and we couldn't do it without you. So coming up on the next episode, we have two coming up here. We're not quite sure the order because we're, again, recording these far in advance. Uh, but we're going to have a special guest uh, to come on, and we're going to be having Carrie Purvis back to talk about her season two watch of Enterprise, her first time watch. And then we're also going to have a new guest, Chris Hill, come on to cover our See It or Skip It season three. So those will be our next two episodes of Warp 5. And I hear there's going to be a shocking conclusion to some of those episodes. Yes. Shocking. 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 Well, thanks so much for joining us, listeners. And remember, you can't be afraid of the wind. <laughs>